Welcome to Transdemic, Trans and Gender Diverse Experiences of the Global Pandemic. I was full of hope and excitement and then COVID happened. Online was my lifeline. Life is easier to be by myself. God, Twitter is the scourge of society. My car was looking like a good place to live. What the pandemic has done is really tease out what's important and what's not important. We are recording this episode on the stolen land of the Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We'd like to particularly acknowledge any brother boys or sister girls who are listening and the work of Black Rainbow, the national advocacy platform and touchpoint for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer, transgender and intersex people. Head to blackrainbow.org.au slash donate to donate. We would like to acknowledge the support of our gold partner, Drummond Street Services Queer Space, who provides counselling and peer support for LGBTIQ plus people and professional development for organisations who work with LGBTIQ plus people and their families. Queer Space is also the proud home to some of Victoria's leading LGBTIQ plus community advocacy groups, including Transgender Victoria, Parents of Gender Diverse Children and Rainbow Families Victoria. Contact 039663-6733 or head to queerspace.org.au. We'd also like to thank Maribyrnong City Council's Together Apart Rapid Relief Fund for their support. Just a note before we start, this episode contains references to mental health issues and difficulties access gender-affirming healthcare issues that some of our listeners might find distressing. If you need support, please contact QLife on 1800 184 627 or Lifeline on 13 Welcome to episode three of our four-part series, Life Under Lockdown. Before we get started, some quick introductions. I'm Gemma Caffarella. I'm a cisgender woman, a radio presenter and a podcaster, and I'm also a community lawyer. I live in the western suburbs of Melbourne. My name is Sam Elkin, and I'm a transmasculine writer, podcaster and community lawyer living in Melbourne. My name is Darcy, and I'm a transmasculine person working as a doctor in rural hospitals. So, Life Under Lockdown, it's been a massive change from what things were like last year. Yeah, reflecting on the notion of lockdown, really one of the first things that comes to my mind is how quickly we've had to adapt to a world in which a lockdown is something that all of a sudden means something to us. It's a word that we all throw around really frequently and we've had to adapt with quite a lot of speed to this basically whole new world. Like, you know, I was sort of thinking about what what is a lockdown? What did it mean to me pre-COVID? And if I'm being honest, it, it meant something that happened in a prison when there was some big incident or threat that was the limit of what I would have thought of when I thought of a lockdown. But really, you know, now it's just something that as of March we've really had to come to terms with and all of a sudden we've become quite accustomed to having our freedoms quite significantly limited. Yeah, I remember when the pandemic first started in Australia, there were certainly some advocates that were like, whoa, what's going on? Why has everybody just let their civil liberties go so quickly without a fight? And it is a really interesting question, limiting people's rights and liberties in order to control a massive health risk to all of us. Where are the lines and what are the limits? And I think we can tell when they've gone too far. (laughs) Like, I think that they went too far with the public housing towers in North Melbourne. I think that a lot of people in the community agree with that, but also a lot of people don't. So it is very much a contested space. 
And I think one of the things that we should acknowledge at the outset is that the extent of the lockdown has been very disproportionate when it comes to minority communities. So what we've seen is quite racially motivated and class motivated policing of different communities who have essentially had higher levels of lockdown than others, as we discussed in the last episode. There's a lot of other new terms in 2021, social distancing. What does it even mean? I would have thought that that was some sort of introvert's manual to become less of a weirdo. (laughs) Sam, just for people listening, Sam self-identifies as an introvert. That wasn't a go at introverts. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's all these new terms that we've all just had to like get our heads around and run with. Some of them are just obviously very wrong, like social distancing. It's not social distancing at all. It's very much physical distancing and involves basically staying away from each other so that we don't infect and kill each other. It's not really about socially moving away. But it has to be said that there has been a huge social and emotional impact, the restrictions on people's lives. And that's a lot of what we want to talk about in this episode. Yeah, I don't think it can be overstated how much of an impact this had on people and how upset people have been by the social isolation they've experienced due to COVID-19. We had a chat to Emma from Sydney and this is what she had to say. If I tried to explain how isolated I felt during this period to myself six months ago, I would have thought, oh my God, you histrionic winter. How ridiculous. I felt so alone despite being surrounded by really great people. Just felt as isolated as I can possibly imagine exists, which is histrionic, but yeah, that's how I felt. Emma also talked about the impact of following the news on her mental health. Yeah, the media barrage about stuff that we can feel anxious about. Everyone should be feeling anxious about I overdosed on that real early. I got my nerd on really early about COVID and found myself shouting at organisations I was related to about how they needed to lock down. Bridge is a, um, I work teaching bridge and with bridge organisations and bridge is a, a game where people pass Petri dishes around the room and most of them are over 70 and they sit there breathing on each other for hours at a time. And the organisations I was working with were like so leaden in moving forward to stop having live bridge games, basically. Really into it really early, like campaigning and talking to people about shutting things down. And by the time sort of three weeks into lockdown had come along, I I just stopped reading the news, like literally turned it off. I was at overdosed. So early on, I went crazy with all the information because I got involved in all of that stuff. And afterwards, I kind of turned off the anxiety machine, uh, aka the news. And what I was doing on the internet instead was finding trans spaces, places where trans people were sharing stuff about their experience, grew a little, I guess I found a little community on there, which made me kind of happy. But over the last few weeks with what's going on in the USA and hopefully what's going on around the world in terms of some social change around racism in particular, been reading a bit of news again. And now instead of feeling anxious like I did with COVID, I'm like full of anger and hyped up and ready to go. I guess in order of events, media out there has made me first of all anxious when COVID started then comforted and held when I started engaging with trans folk online and now angry. <laughs> Is that three little little buttons you can press on Facebook? Is there an anxious face? <laughs> my experience of that was at work. I just found that my work colleagues seemed to try to cope with the pandemic by just constantly sending updates from all these different agencies 
about how their services were going to be impacted and I was getting, you know, three or four emails an hour about how the, all these other places were dealing with COVID and I felt like I just wanted to kind of bury my head in the normality of work and I couldn't for the life of me escape. Darcy, what were your initial experiences of lockdown? I loved it. I was staying at home with a really good excuse. I really, really, really want to go out dancing now. But um, at first I was just delighted to have an excuse to go out and do anything. I remember when there were a couple of illegal raves that were on the news that were in various places in Germany and I was just like, oh, my God, you couldn't pay me to go to a rave illegal (laughs) otherwise. I'm so glad those days are behind us now. My other experience of the initial phases of lockdown, I've got to say, were, Sam, living together, you were just, every time you spoke to anyone on the phone about anything, you managed to weave in the fact that you loved being in lockdown and that you felt that life was immeasurably better and I was just like really not having the best time as an extrovert and really missing social stuff and you were just like rubbing salt in my wounds by telling everyone how much you loved the hell out of lockdown. I got quite obsessed with accounts of the plague historically as well. I read that Henry Defoe book, A History of a Plague Year, and got quite into the Spanish flu. So I wasn't so much into the social media stuff of the here and now, but, you know, reading historical accounts. But to be honest, I didn't really find many people to talk to about that stuff, so... What, you mean you couldn't find a a whole bevy of other people who were into the Spanish flu? Well, that's the thing, you know... Social media, everybody's just talking about the latest outrage of what somebody said on the internet. They don't care about Daniel Defoe's historical account of a Adler and what happened in London. That's a great segue, Sam. Let's talk about social media in COVID. What have your experiences been? Well, I have tried to find social media from the other side. You know how you're, everybody's meant to be in their own social media bubble now where Everybody just reinforces their own viewpoints and that, you know, there's an algorithm where you can only see your own content and I'm a bit of a uh, mad lefty. So I generally only get kind of like left-wing content about the pandemic, but I've become quite obsessed with American conspiracy theories about COVID-19 not being real and like looking at those memes and stuff is just bizarre. So yeah, social media has gotten really weird and I personally see it as a tool that's going to descend us into fascism. I know that's an unpopular view. And definitely something that I've noticed is that people have got a whole lot more time on their hands to be on social media. And so I think that an unfortunate flip side of that is that I think people are feeling anxious and a bit upset by the whole pandemic. And so I think the unfortunate flip side of that is that there seem to have been a few more pylons than normal. And, you know, in particular, Twitter seems to be a particularly unhappy place at the moment. This is what Roz from Archer Magazine had to say. The internet for me has been more of a way to connect and even like to self-soothe it ever has before. And ever since the internet was created when I was like, I don't know, year seven or year eight, I've been like pretty obsessed with it. And I did like my honours thesis on it, on queer people and the internet. And it's always been something that I've been interested in as a topic, but also how it's played out in my life. For me, one of the main ways has been through Twitter. And even though so much of the time when I'm telling my partner something from Twitter, she's like, God, Twitter is the scourge of society. Get off Twitter. It's terrible. And I'm just like, no. (laughs) And no matter how bad things get on there, like there's just something that keeps me coming back. And I've made like Twitter friends and have like great conversations in the DMs that like 
keep me laughing no matter what else is going on. And so I think for me, like it's been a wonderful way to find community, even things like people's Twitter bios and like the details they choose to put in there and not, it makes it like so easy to find trans and gender diverse people and connect with them. I think at certain points, like even if I'm like in a bad mood or upset or feeling down, it's been a way to, I don't know, it's like this like comfort and support, but also like validation there. Because I think a lot of us who are like Twitter obsessed, we tend to do a lot of oversharing and then we get a lot of validation back. So Gemma, you mentioned that there were a few Twitter pylons going on in the COVID lockdown, possibly because people have a bit more time on their hands. Have, have you been trolling online in the wee hours? I haven't. I've been the subject of a pylon, which was quite upsetting. I posted some stuff about a quite prominent Twitter user associated with the Australian politics hashtags, who is also a quite staunch trans-exclusionary radical feminist. And I posted about that fact and was the subject of a really quite astonishing pylon. So that was my experience. It was really upsetting. It was definitely not what I needed given all the other stuff that there is to actually be anxious about at the moment, namely, you know, whether or not me or my family are going to catch COVID-19. And I kind of did everything I could to move away from the pylon. And yeah, I've been a little bit more cautious with my Twitter posts since I must admit. Well, I'm not really much of a Twitter user, but I do use Facebook a bit mainly for the the Shed, which is a transmasculine peer support group, and I've been loving it. It remains, you know, genuinely one of the best things on the internet for me. People generally ask the same questions over and over again. There's the, where can I get hormones? Can I do microdosing? What are the costs of chest surgery at the moment? And so on. But like, I really love being part of that community. And I think that a lot of other trans and gender diverse people use the internet and really get a lot out of it as part of the social community. This is what Kat, a user experience web designer from Geelong, who we first met in episode one, had to say. It's been amazing. So I don't know if you're like me. I find a lot of trans people have a similar experience to me, especially who are in my age group, who might have grown up a little bit with the internet, jumped on super early, and we might have gotten involved in MySpace or LiveJournal or even more recently Tumblr and found access to those little communities. I myself was super duper into an Avril Lavigne forum when I was young, found community in that. So I definitely look towards communities online a lot more and it was easier for me to find those online so there was definitely heaps out there and being able to realize that uh, different communities sort of spring up in different social media worlds there's different types of twitter there's design twitter people have heard of tumblr and the different communities that are inside of tumblr and that's really interesting that's where i was exposed to the world of the gender spectrum and the fact that i didn't necessarily have to be a man or a woman and i wasn't necessarily either and there was a space for that too. So digital communities have been amazing for me and I always try to talk about them and elevate them, encourage other people to get involved in them. Um, and as toxic as some online communities can be, they are also a really, really great place to connect with others and, and find safety and community as well. Lauren Darcy talked about their social media use to interact with LGBTIQ communities during the lockdown. I don't know a huge amount of trans or ace people in person, although that's improving, which is fantastic. But I have definitely reached out to those groups and to social media much more often. If this was happening in a pre-internet time, the experience would be much more difficult, particularly for those of us who are marginalised. 
Yeah, so can you imagine a COVID-19 lockdown world without the internet? This is what Daniel Defoe's book about a diary of a plague year was all about. Like they didn't have the internet then in the 1600s. They just sat around playing cards and they were literally shut in. So the government would come with boards and like block up your doors and put a big sign over the front that in red paint that said something like blessed are the damned or you were locked in there like properly locked in for 28 days and there'd be somebody who would stand out the front of your house and they would be tasked with going to get you more food or Mm. provide you with your letters or whatever and if you tried to sneak out they were allowed to kill you so kill oh my god kill it's a bit like the towers. Yeah, but it's kind of interesting the parallels because they were called the Watchmen. So, you know, that movie, The Watchmen, I think that's riffing on that idea. So the Watchmen yeah. could often get bribed by rich city folk so that they could flee to their country estate, which is exactly what's going yeah. on now pretty much. <laughs> which is not to say that people didn't get sick of the internet. This is what Roz from Archer Magazine had to say about trying to organise some of their neighbours on the internet. And so I made this comment that maybe that would be helpful just to get like even the email address or or contact number for people on the street and put it together. And one of the neighbours got really worked up and said, as long as you don't make another um, social media group, like I will not be part of even one more WhatsApp group or one more Facebook messenger group um, getting messages about things, even if it is the community and even if it's like essential services. And at the time I was just like, oh, okay, sorry. Um, But then I guess later... I'm almost at that state of like there are so many groups and so many things going on at once that I I now understand that a little bit better. Gemma, have you gotten sick of the internet yet? I've had a complicated relationship with the internet. I have gone through periods where I found really interesting and good things about it. You know, it was quite remarkable how all these different organisations kind of put a lot of their normally paid for content out for free and seemed really promising and really great. Not that I made the most of that. I definitely put a lot of things on my list and then just watched the 24-hour news cycle and watched the cases spike up for a while. But also I have been demoralised by watching those news cycles and also by the pressure to achieve a lot. I joined a lot of WhatsApp groups, like Rose was saying there. I'm in coronavirus setting and it was originally a real source of comfort to me and it is still a source of comfort to me but now when I check in on it, it's like, hey, somebody lost their key at the Trugo Club and then there's just a photo of this key. And so I do check in sometimes to see like who's lost their key or who's looking for a mowing business in the area. It's kind of become a little bit like Facebook marketplace. Jinghua and Roz talked about accessing the queer scene online. There was like quite a different use of the internet, especially during the first part of the lockdown when I think it was still a little bit novel. And I was like going to these queer parties on Zoom that were hosted in Toronto or wherever, you know, but just people all over the world in places where where it was their nighttime, right? So turning up to these queer parties in London or Toronto or wherever when it was actually 2pm or something and I was like eating my lunch or my breakfast. I went to a couple of parties 
club quarantine and Bufu Collective, I think, which is like by us, for us, which is people of colour, like club night basically on Zoom. And they were great, you know, it was a real good feeling. And even just like the chat in all these spaces being like kind of pervy and I would be in, you know, like my final pyjamas or whatever, but (laughs) like people really dressed up for them and stuff. And so you'd be seeing these people like in their cute like club outfits, like twerking on camera. I kind of engaged a bit too much. And at one point I was like, okay, I have to pull back now. Um, And my partner and I realized we were socializing so much more than we normally do. And it just kind of got to be a bit too much. Like it got to the point where even something that sounded quite fun, it was really like, oh God, can I do my fourth Zoom or whatever today? I think one thing that stood out to me maybe was sometimes like feeling in the community I'm not sure where my place in it is exactly and so my participation is a lot of it is online like through social media or like through the editing that I do at Archer and I have a lot of contact with different people but less of the social side just because I'm not a huge person for nightlife and drinking drugs any of that stuff I've really enjoyed the opportunity to socialize in a way that doesn't involve those things in that way as an example the queer community that I fit into is quite involved the club scene and unicorns parties and all those kinds of things to me it just sort of like that whole thing makes me kind of nervous in that sense I remember saying at one point during the pandemic that I feel guilty saying it but that I kind of loved that everyone was stuck at home in a way because I got to engage with people where I normally just think our ways of like socializing and going out are just too different and not compatible and it found like it made a lot of like very extroverted people like kind of against their will have to socialize from home and so in that way it kind of worked quite well for me. Cedar talked to us about trans and gender diverse events being more accessible because they were now online. Because so many things are online, some of the things that I might have been too socially anxious to go to poetry events or performance events, queer things like that, I have gone to more of. Being able to kind of join something on Zoom and turn my camera off or like join a live stream has felt something that I can sort of participate in more without having to kind of gear myself up for that sort of social interaction and being in this public space being perceived and stuff like that. And this is something that Eve, who organises trans peer support events online, noticed as well. I volunteer for Transgender Victoria as one of the coordinators of the peer support group. And like so many events during the lockdown and the pandemic, we moved that face-to-face in-person group. We moved it onto Zoom. And I think I and many of the other coordinators were concerned about how it would work, if you could kind of establish any sense of connection or rapport via Zoom. But I think I and, and others have kind of been pleasantly surprised by how well Zoom has worked and in, in how in some ways it's kind of made this support group more accessible for trans and gender diverse people. I've been just kind of told anecdotally by some people for whom like they're just kind of beginning to question their gender or at the early stages of their transition. The idea of walking into a physical space full of trans people just would seem so daunting and terrifying that they could never kind of bring themselves to do it. But, you know, just kind of entering a Zoom meeting seems much more low stakes and therefore more accessible. So we've definitely had quite a few first timers come to the meetings, which has been great. 
and also for people who live outside of metropolitan Melbourne because our old face-to-face meetings were close to the inner city, people for whom their geographic location made it hard to attend. I think they've found the online meetings really beneficial because, of course, once you step outside the inner city, there's just a sort of fewer numbers of trans and gender diverse people and fewer support services. So it's been really great to connect to different sorts of people. You know, we'll ultimately revert back to face-to-face peer support group meetings, but also kind of continue to run occasional online ones as well to keep sustaining these sort of unexpected benefits. Jack's talked more about the unexpected benefits of more accessible spaces for some during COVID-19. For me personally, as a queer wheelchair user, it's broken down some of those barriers in terms of attendance because a lot of our fabulous queer parties are up a flight of stairs in a dark room because that's where we can get cheap rent and that's where we can find each other and find ourselves and have that hot patch on a Saturday night. But that's that's not what where I've been able to find access to my community. So having online gigs or events, even with a screaming toddler when I'm on mute, has allowed me to have a greater access to community. But that's only with my particular impairments. Like I would say for queer deaf people, when there's no Auslan interpreter or live captioning, what's their access like to queer community now? What's the access of somebody who's got an intellectual or cognitive disability or who lives in a group home? where those places routinely don't have internet access or phone access in the very homes people live in. So for those LGBTIQ people with disabilities, they have been totally shut out of their access to their community that they might have fought really hard to have in their NDIS plans or with people supporting them in their lives. The COVID-19 pandemic really just showed up the extent to which more events should have been able to be accessible in different ways earlier. Like we watched a June Jones gig. It was a fundraiser live on Instagram. And, you know, it was actually really nice to have the option of not having to like, you know, get dressed, not have to get in an Uber or get on public transport, usually go across to the other side of town and come home, you know, really late and exhausted. Um, You know, I'm someone who has some health conditions and sometimes I'm really just not up for that, Um, you know, and I know that my experience of that is quite minor to the experiences that other people have. So, yeah, I think it's really shown that it should have been a thing for a really long time because it's not actually that hard to do. It is complicated though because for some online communication is more inaccessible and that's what Emma talked about a bit. I have social anxiety and in particular like anxiety around conversational pragmatic and interacting with people in digital forms that is doubled and tripled. Yeah, so in a face-to-face conversation, the pragmatics going on that give me the ability to feel confident and comfortable with the person I'm with are their gesticulations and their facial expressions and the subtle tone of their voice, intonation and all the things that you absorb when you're face-to-face with someone that you don't absorb in a digital format. You get a little bit of it if you're on a video chat. I think everyone who's tried to have a Zoom meeting for work knows like the limitations. I feel that really immensely. I I glean a lot from the physicality of humans in my space and whether what our conversation is doing and whether it's okay. Physical presence makes it much better for me. I only got to participate in the kind of queer world that made me feel safe. I mean, I've been queer for a long, long time, but I've not had an identity in that queer space that I felt was right. And in the couple of months before COVID, I really loved that space, the the queer 
out party experience. And there's a, a bunch of those places that I feel nervous are never going to be the same or won't exist or, yeah, I feel exactly that. Anxiety that that joy might not exist again. Simona also mentioned the limitations of online socialising. The issue about being queer or being trans is that feeling of isolation, that feeling of erasure and that the club or the live music venue is a place where we connect. There was someone who's been sort of researching like the evolution of the gender non-conformity city when I look back at how you know gender nonconformity emerged through clubs hundred years ago say in San Francisco whether it be sort of 40 years ago through King's Cross it's like the first time in 100 years that we haven't been able to congregate in clubs or live music venues as queer people that's a really critical way that our community comes together but also overcomes our mental illness our feelings of isolation and that that's been taken away from us through COVID and enforced by restrictions and that the government isn't talking about strategies, how we can open that up. You know, I'm finding some despair in that. Particularly things like Zoom parties or Zoom meetups, they're all about invitation, you know, and if you're not in the group of five friends or the group of 10 friends for the Zoom party, then, you know, you're it's not like you can just walk into the bar and participate in that sense. It's not like just walking onto a dance floor and letting spontaneity take its course, you know, truly kind of left lying on your bed staring at the ceiling. So I worry about that. One thing that I was really struck by is the different ways that people still felt stifled or conversely freer to express their gender during COVID-19. If someone had tried to explain this to me before I'd noticed I was trans, I would have sort of shook my head and tried to understand but not got it. Like the process that I imagined and experienced for a really short time before COVID was dressing up femme and going somewhere. <laughs> and in that somewhere, I'm in the inner west of Sydney, so there's lots of queers around. And in that somewhere, I would get validation from all the people around me about what I was doing and how I was expressing myself. And that just helped me step by step to feel okay about who I was becoming. With COVID, that just doesn't exist. There's going up to the shops, but the shops are dead. (laughs) There's going down to the cafe and getting a takeaway, but you can't sit in there and mingle with the staff that you love and have a chat to the other customers. And if you do, there's like this nervous social isolating that everyone's doing or distancing that everyone's doing. And for a baby Tran, some of that feels like they're distancing because they think I'm freaky or weird and... I know know that's not something that would worry me if I had validation pouring in from other spaces, but that validation doesn't exist because we're all so locked down and everyone's hiding at home. The lack of humans on the street in places going to places is a lack of a resource that I think is really important for me and I've struggled with that. That was Emma. On the other hand, Cedar shared some experiences about feeling freer. But like leaving the house and figuring out what to wear is a struggle a lot of the time. And I'll kind of like go through lots of different outfits and I don't know, be upset and then leave the house and feel really uncomfortable all day and like watch people perceiving me or like see people perceiving me and be really kind of preoccupied with that. And that's sort of like being a big part of the way that I interact with social space or space. And so I feel like not having that and having my interactions online or on over the phone mostly has been quite freeing or good in terms of that sort of thing. And it was interesting to hear how some of the established queer groups managed the move online. 
I am part of the Melbourne Gay and Lesbian Chorus. It's like queer choir times. They've been sort of keeping going during the pandemic. So I feel like that's been another space that I've been interacting with weekly that I was before. I'd just joined it. I'd been for like a month in person and we have choir every week and then there's sort of social catch-ups through that as well felt quite connected to that space and like obviously they've been going through trying to work out how best to use that online space especially there's a lot of older people in the choir who um, I think getting everyone to participate in the platform and stuff like that has been something that they've been working on I've definitely found that I have felt connected to different arts and culture things in a similar way even maybe more so than I was engaging with just before the pandemic. The pandemic really did some interesting things to distance. In many ways, people who lived far away felt even further away. State borders were closed, international travel stopped, and it became increasingly difficult for people to physically be in the same location as their loved ones that were far away. But on the other hand, in many ways, those borders essentially broke down. So some of my friends organised a catch-up every Saturday night and we participated in it and they live in a different state. And so it was really nice, like we reconnected with them kind of like we're back in each other's lives in a way that we hadn't been able to do properly for a long time and then like the second that state went out of lockdown we stopped doing these but there wasn't even any discussion about it no one mentioned it ever again and like on one level I felt relieved because I was like every Saturday night we're having to jump on zoom and do this long thing but on another it was like oh okay so like things like that really are just going to go straight back and those friends like went straight back to going out as much as they could and that kind of thing. But while it was easier than ever for many people to connect overseas, it could also be really difficult to provide meaningful support. Realising, I guess, how helpless you are if you live in another country and often particularly in queer community, you're not going to be that connected to each other's parents the way that I am, like, say, with my childhood friends. And so it's not like I could really reach out to this friend's parents or extended family or anything like that. So I felt like kind of at the mercy of technology to get updates and just at times that was a really difficult dynamic I think once lockdown started, it was interesting to me that it sort of both narrowed distances and changed our perceptions of space because everyone felt equally distant from each other. So, yeah, I have been in contact with people overseas more so than I would be normally. I was sort of in contact with everyone the same way through video chat and text and email and whatever else. Darcy also talked about the impact of COVID-19 on romance and dating. Honestly, it is really hard at the moment with being in touch with my spouse overseas. Their situation is a lot more precarious than mine, so their their living situation is quite precarious and their access to technology in order to be able to actually talk to me is on and off. They've also gone through some issues with violent housemates during the time, so that's been really challenging. It's been really hard being here and not being able to support them beyond sending them some money when I'm able to and chatting to them them and stuff and having this these incredibly like glitchy and fragmented video conversations I haven't seen anyone that I'm dating in person in quite a while now so a lot of the romantic gestures that I might have in my relationships have to happen online instead of in person I'm also trying to do things like send people stuff in the post more Law who we first met in episode one also talked about the impact of dating during COVID-19 Online dating, which is a whole other thing, being an ace person, that's become more active because people have been wanting and seeking connection in general. 
Um, and their website actually sort of suggested, oh, do you want to open up to the entire world? Since everyone's at home at the moment anyway, you might as well. Um, so that was kind of cool to have some conversations with people from like Istanbul and different countries. I did meet one person because they happened to live in the same suburb. So we went for a walk, which, which was cool, weird, but cool. But that's meeting in person, I find anxiety stuff anyway. But it was good, all that considered. Um, but yeah, that's been an interesting, it's been a nice distraction as well. You know, the excitement of getting to know a new human is always, I find people a mixture of fascinating and scary and inspiring. <laughs> I spoke with Nevo, who was keen to share their experiences around new etiquettes in dating and romance during COVID too. My name is Nevo Zissen. I use they, them pronouns. I'm an author, an educator and public speaker based in Birunga, Melbourne. I started dating two different people during isolation, which was a really interesting time for my love life to like explode. <laughs> and dating in isolation has been especially interesting because it's like, what does a social distance date look like and how do you do it? My friend said something really funny because she was like, how do you know if a first date is good if you can't even smell the other person? And it's such a weird thing that you don't really think about often. But like for me, especially I think like attraction is so related to someone's smell and it's hard to know if I'm attracted to someone if I can't smell them. And so I haven't done any Zoom dates because I haven't quite felt like that's my, my shtick. But um, I have been on a few like distance walks with people and it's really interesting. Like it's kind of in some ways it's it's weird and a little bit uncomfortable, but in other ways it's almost nice to have the pressure off of a first date to feel like you can just have the confirmation that you're not going to touch and so you don't have to worry about like, are we going to kiss? Is now the right time? You know, how do, you, how do we do that? And so it's nice to have that pressure gone and to just be able to speak and connect. But then also when you have decided that maybe you do want to kiss them, like it feels like a really big ask because you're not just asking them like, do you want to kiss? Like usual, you're asking like, do you want to break isolation with me? Like, do you want to break your bubble? Do you want a fluid bond with me? Like, are you ready for this huge step? Do you want to risk your health with me? So that's been really interesting to navigate. And there's been a few times on these distance dates where I have wanted to kiss someone, but then it's just kind of been a conversation afterwards of like, oh, I wanted to kiss you, but I didn't know what your boundaries were around that. And then we've had chats about it and kind of been like, let's talk to our housemates about it and then come back together. And then on our second or third date or something, we've decided that we've assessed all the risks and it's like worth having a kiss. But then that feels like so much pressure. And what if it's a bad kiss and it wasn't worth like breaking your isolation over it? Uh, so yeah, seeing that thing, those things come up has been really funny and weird and not something I thought I would navigate. Nevo also talked about the way that COVID-19 restrictions have given us greater permission in some ways to talk about our emotional and physical needs. I think it's been really interesting to see how open people have been about needing physical intimacy and touch, I think in a way that we're a lot more private about usually. And I think the reality is, is that people are lonely all the time. I think that we live in a world that is designed to make us feel lonely. And so what was interesting for me is that I'm quite aware of that a lot of the time, but people were just being a lot more honest about it now. And I really liked that. 
I don't know, it just kind of felt like there was more romance in the air a little bit. Like people wanted that kind of connection. Like they were craving that sort of intimacy. And I really enjoyed that. It made me, I think for me, like a way that I grapple with loneliness if I'm not dating anyone or I don't have like a particular romantic connection is usually because I'm polyamorous or non-monogamous. I get a lot of my needs met through my friendships and I have a lot of very intimate friendships. And so that usually helps me to not feel lonely. But, you know, when you're in the the grips of social isolation, you can't have those needs met by anyone really. And Jinghua also shared ear experiences. In terms of hookups, I think everyone went through a really horny stage at the beginning of the pandemic when I think it was part of the panic. Part of the panic was like this horny panic when we didn't really know how long the lockdown would be for and it felt like it was going to be forever. And I was hearing from like single friends being like, am I going to be single forever? If I start hooking up with someone now, does it have to be monogamous? Everyone's trying to assess risk in all these different ways, which is kind of makes a lot of things feel maybe a bit more heavy or a bit more laden than you want at the beginning of something. Like it's quite hard, I think, to do something casually, especially if if casual normally means like not talking that much. Um, so I really partly missed being able to have casual situations that were not terribly verbal, um, especially as like a very verbal person and as a writer, like, I guess, yeah, there's something really, there's a real relief to like casual shit that's non, non-verbal, I suppose. During that time, I started sexting someone off Lex, which is like a text only platform. Yeah, I think I'd put up an ad that was like sexed me, basically. I got some really fun responses and I think it um, felt to me really like that kind of lo-fi text-only internet from, you know, like 2000 when I had shitty dial-up and, you know, no one had like the internet speeds to be video chatting. That kind of like really emo, like intense, wordy, overly intimate, overly sentimental um, vibe. I'm kind of into it. I was like a real like zine star live journal kid. So yeah, it, it, it felt good to me and it felt like real fan fiction like as well. So I started sexting this person and I think it was like quite an interesting exchange because we were both gender fluid and we were having this like text-based conversation where we didn't know, you know, each other's like names. We didn't really make reference to our real bodies. It was kind of fictionalized in this way and it kind of felt like, you know, half like cybersex and half like we were writing this extensive fan fiction together. And you know how Slash is like really pervy and really dorky at the same time? It's intensely dorky because it's all these like little bookwormy kids trying to have sex through words. And I, I just love that dynamic. So that was really fun. But then I feel like as it went on, everyone was experiencing in different ways this sort of like disjuncture with reality and the unendingness of it. And I feel like, yeah, I don't know. There were both positives and negatives, I suppose, in that kind of isolated, overly online interaction. Everything that happened during lockdown feels both real and kind of like bracketed in this way where it does feel kind of discreet from 
the rest of reality, I suppose. So there was a point where I was like, um, I had this person like, uh, I guess doing various tasks on video that they would send to me. Right. And that was really fun, but that's just like, not something that's going to continue. You know, I feel like the time for that has passed the feeling of whatever that was. I don't know. So we might like continue to interact, but that type of like online domination or whatever, it's like not something I really have energy for, or, you know, it was like a real specific to COVID thing, I guess. It was really interesting to hear from our interviewees about their dating experiences. And, you know, in particular, Nevo really left me with something to think about when they were talking about upping the stakes of dating and that idea that like, in a context where it could potentially be like risky to everyone in your household to like kiss someone, is this a kind of situation where you really want to commit to the kiss? I thought that was a really interesting point. It does seem to have been a very chastening um, experience for uh, a lot of us, but yeah, it was really interesting to hear from Xinhua and how people have been managing to find new ways of creating erotic connections during this time of great change. Another subject that came up was about study and we found that a lot of trans and gender diverse people that we spoke to were studying during the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, or running online education. So we'll hear from Eve and Randos. My name is Randos Korobax and I live in Dysart, Tasmania in the Southern Midlands. I'm attempting to be a sociologist by trade, specialising in masculinities. I've spent the last 15 years working in a mental health hospital. Studying this type of human event is my bag. Sociologists study these massive human events, so this has been really professionally distracting beyond words. I meant to be doing my thesis on something else, not COVID-19 and, and the impacts of health and ageing and the ageism that's come out of it, for example, or the riots or whatever, because this is a once-in-a-lifetime event. And for me, it's just all data. It's exhilarating and devastating at the same time. So for me, it's been a very hectic, full-on time, but just in a different way. I think it's been incredibly challenging um, educationally. So many of us have come to realise Zoom and other video conferencing software, even, you know, even in the best of times, there's no substitute for face-to-face interactions. And, you know, the kind of teaching I do in the discipline of history um, is very much based around conversations and debate and unpacking ideas and fleshing them out and testing assumptions. And it's really just almost impossible to get that kind of sense of ideas flowing and kind of sparks flying and, you know, connections being made in a Zoom seminar, which is what I've been running. So I feel really badly for students studying this year. I think particularly for students who are isolated or marginalised in other ways, whether they're gender diverse or trans or have the parts of their identity that make university a challenge. I think the kind of extra isolation and the extra challenges with learning online has made this, yeah, yeah, pretty close to a write-off in some ways. One thing that came out of the pandemic was that a lot of institutions opened up their doors online to allow people to have access to material that would normally be in the realm of people who could afford to pay their fees. And in many ways, that was really great that all that learning became really quite accessible. But in many ways, I found it really frustrating because it came out at a time which, you know, was really stressful. And I think it's hard for people to really make the most of those kind of resources realistically when they're struggling through a global pandemic. But also I, you know, just found it frustrating that 
all of those immense resources, all of that learning, all of those opportunities to think are normally cloistered in behind closed doors that people need to have money in order to open. I just thought about how much I would like to do online learning and how I remember when I went to uni and graduated back in 2007, I pretty much was doing online learning before that was even a thing. I would just listen to the lectures and not go to class and only take classes where there was no participation requirement. You're a pioneer. We also talked about lockdown and how it's affected people's drug and alcohol intake. It's a topic that has been talked about a lot in the media, so I was really interested to hear what's been going on out there. And this is Kat talking about smoking. Yeah, so a million percent, they went way up. And then I was like, hey, I can't breathe and, and got paranoid about having having COVID and, and got tested and, and since realised, oh, Obviously, I'm smoking much more than I was before because, uh, you know, I'm not in the office where you can't smoke. I'm just pottering around my house and going out the back and, you know, being outside so I can. So it definitely was smoking more and since realised and, and trying to cut back, obviously. And then, of course, there's alcohol. And I know that my alcohol intake has probably increased during the pandemic. And I guess it's been used in a different way. You know, people would often go out for drinks at the pub or have a meal with friends and drink, whereas obviously everybody now is drinking at home. And this is Simona. I started drinking for the first time in seven years, which I thought was really interesting. So, I don't know, I just really sort of got into cooking. I feel like at the start of COVID, I was trying to exercise a lot because that was also because the weather was great and then there's also this like really weird thing too where it was just like every night I was having like really crazy dreams or full-on nightmares and there's nothing I could do about it and it's like every time I got back into bed I felt like I was returning back into the nightmare and then I'd wake up from the nightmare and walk over to my computer and start work. I was interested to hear from Randos about his reflections on the impact of the pandemic on drug use in Tasmania and the impact that it's had on people who are already experiencing problematic drug use in the community. Of course, a lot of problems in the men's sex scene in terms of the consumption of drugs that's spiked through the roof and addicts are really struggling at the moment because the price of gear has gone up. And so even though if they've missed the gap of getting the extra income from the government, for the addicts who just haven't been able to get it together in time and capitalise on getting a place to stay, their addiction has just gotten a lot nastier for them because their drugs have just gotten a whole lot more expensive because of scarcity, because of there's no planes coming through. So, you know, all the dynamics in the crim world has changed up as well. It's really interesting. One of the biggest impacts of the pandemic is the amount of time that people are spending at home and how that's changed the nature of their relationships with their housemates, their family members and with their neighbours. I think it's really interesting because you go from living with like housemates to then living with people who I guess in some ways are not necessarily expected to, but well, somewhat expected to kind of fulfill the needs that you have in a time of isolation, like affection needs and validation and emotional support, maybe in ways that you wouldn't expect that of housemates usually. I think there's also certain boundaries or certain communication spaces that would never have been traversed if it wasn't for a pandemic. Like, for example, having to ask my housemates if I can hug my mom. I could never envision a world in which I would have to do that but that was the position that I was in and so I guess it's been like mostly really positive and I feel very grateful to live in a queer household with people who are switched on and who understand communication and emotional responsibility and at the same time definitely challenging to be traversing these landscapes 
with people that I wouldn't imagine I would have done that with before or if I had necessarily had a choice in the matter. But it's been really special, I think, to create those kind of mutual care environments where we can check in with each other and we can offer each other support. And Emma also talked about having housemates and how the pandemic has changed her relationship with made her feel more grateful. I am so lucky to live with the most amazing person who gave me a space to feel safe enough to come out in the first place and has lots of trans friends and just knows how to be. But for a few friends who know how to be, she's like on another level. Her compassion has just made it possible for me to learn who I am. So I have immense gratitude for where I am. The anger part of it is that I think I was just beginning to discover a chosen family when COVID happened. But the way that was happening was going to events and running into people and seeing them and, you know, seeing them for the second time and the third time and finally exchanging details. But the finally exchanging details thing, I just uh, never got around to because no one said you're about to go home and get locked down. (laughs) So... I feel cordoned off from the chosen family that I was about to create. And that makes me frustrated and angry. And I was genuinely surprised and touched to hear about how Cedar's living arrangements had changed recently. So I um, was living in a share house at the start of lockdown, but then I came to stay with my gran. And so I'm still here. I've been here for the last kind of three months or so because she's sort of, she's almost 92 and um, was living alone. And I wanted to, I guess, sort of support her during this time. Her Bible study started up on Zoom and so I've kind of helped been getting her onto Zoom weekly to go to Bible study. So that's been quite nice. I think she's really appreciate she's really appreciated me being here. Yeah. So that was something that I was quite interested in at the start. I was like, oh my gosh, how am I gonna do this? Like this is the weirdest time to like go on hormones when I'm literally like living with my gran. Um that felt very interesting to me and um a, like a bizarre thing to happen. Um, but I guess like at the moment there hasn't been things that have happened as real of tea where I've like needed to, I guess, kind of have it as a discussion. So I haven't spoken to her about it. Yeah. I don't know. I think we've been, it's interesting with like her with gender stuff. She, I never expected her to be okay with things. And I've been really amazed by how on board with stuff that she has been like I yeah just wouldn't have necessarily expected that and she like but she really she just loves her grandkids a lot and is really um cares about doing what makes them happy and so I think it's kind of hard for her with things like she um is quite good with my name um is less good with gendered language because she uses things like girl um a lot when referring to me and I kind of have started I don't know I'll correct her and I correct her in this way of like oh not a girl whenever she uses a girl word like darling girl or something and she started being like oh yeah you're not a girl and then using a different term or like she'll kind of self-correct um it's still like it's interesting because it has been I don't know I really feel very touched and very proud of her as well for being able to at like 92 um shift that kind of way of understanding things and speaking about someone through with like little resistance um even though it's like so different from everything that she has ever thought and Jinghua talked about what social restrictions have meant for visits with family 
I visit my parents for dinner every couple of weeks and then we'll video call my grandma overseas while we're there. So we kind of have like a video dinner. Uh, but yeah, I've called her a couple of times myself instead, which I haven't, haven't actually done that much. Like I really speak to her one-on-one. So that was quite lovely. And I think it really reminded me of being there. And Tarnine talked about the way the restrictions affected their connection with their Aboriginal community. I was living in the western suburb and then we moved mid-ISO and, like, I was really struggling. Like, I worked in an Aboriginal organisation but we were working from home and I'm a social worker and so that was really difficult because I was also living with my partner and their, our friend um, and they're both white. And I've never um, really, like, lived with white people. At, like, this is my first time living with white people. And I think being in isolation and only seeing white people was really, really difficult. I really was missing my family and, like, my community. The social interactions between black colours in the the way that we talk and our humour and the way that we care for each other is very different. Yeah, I struggled a lot. And particularly being on the other side of town where all of my family are kind of in the northern suburbs. And so it made it even, like, more difficult to see people as well. It was already, like, pretty isolating being in the western suburbs but then when I moved over, but then being in isolation as well made it more difficult. And I think I've just realised for myself I really do need to be around my community and black holes. And it's nothing, like, against obviously my partner and our friend, but it's just really, it's a really different being around white people so intensely than you're spending all day and all night with people and not having any social interactions with others uh, physically. So we moved mid-ISO and we like moved to the northern suburbs and it really changed my interactions with my family, which was really good. I see my family a lot more now. And even having my family help us move felt that really it was really lovely, to be honest, just to see them and hang out and like because you know you're allowed to have people move. It just felt really nice and like I had my family visit, really lovely, and I am really glad that we did get to move. And Chinkwa talked about the way that the restrictions impacted people who have different kinds of communities and, and rely on different kinds of people or social structures for emotional support, like many of us do in the LGBTIQ community. You know, social distancing is really important, but also like there's a lot of assumptions in the laws and and in a lot of the advice given about how people interact, how people find support, what their families and communities look like. And obviously that affects queers, but it affects a lot of people whose social support networks might not look the way that the government expects, I suppose. I actually found it really beautiful to to go out into the sunshine and see people were masked up and they had their hand sand, but they were still like sitting around the rocks, like gossiping. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Like all the old men who were just like always in Nicholson Mall. So Sam, you've spoken with lots of different people from the trans and gender diverse communities about lockdown and all its different incarnations. What's your key takeaway? I think people are having a hard time. I think people are enjoying some aspects of the lockdown, particularly if they're introverts like me, and I think extroverts are having a very, very hard time. 
I think that the experience of gender and COVID-19 is a really interesting one. I think that it depends a lot on where people are in their journey in terms of how they're finding it. For people that are just on the beginning of their transition journey, for example, it can be really, really hard because we don't have those spaces to connect with each other. We're not able to express our gender identity in the club or in bars or out on the street in the ways that we otherwise would. And I think for a lot of people that's been really depressing and you can't get that time back. But for others, it seems to have alleviated a lot of ongoing dysphoria and suffering. So yeah, it's been a bit mixed bag, but everybody who I spoke to was really keen to hear about how other people were experiencing this incredibly strange time. So hopefully our listeners will get something out of hearing that at times contradictory feeling people are having. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to keep in touch with us, please do look us up and follow us on Facebook, which is Facebook forward slash Transdemic. You can also send us an email, transdemic at gmail.com, and we would love to have your support via our Patreon. Thanks, as always, for listening to our podcast, and we will be back next time for our final episode, Home Economics.